You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It's great to see you today. Hey, if you're uh, sitting on that side of the aisle over there, there's a a black notebook sitting on the ground, and if you um, could grab that and pass it down this way. If you're uh, visiting with us, my name is Ross, and I want to add my welcome this morning. We're so glad that you're here. We, we don't think you're visit here by accident in any way, and uh, trust that you will meet with exactly what the Lord has for you this morning. Um, we're glad that you're here. If you're Visiting, so it's a great place to let us know that you're here. We'd love to send you an email, say thanks for, for coming. And also, before you leave, there's a, there's a table in the back, a, like a desk back there. Um, stop by and grab a bag of coffee. It, it's, a, it's a little bag of coffee. It comes from the foundry downtown, from our downtown campus. Um, it's great. It's the best coffee in town, and we'd love for you to, to have that and, and brew that this week as another way for us to say thanks. Um, and for everybody, if, if there's ways we can pray for you, we'd love to do that. Um, we do that every week as elders and pastors. It's a real privilege for us to do that, to, to pray with you and for you um, as we lift up this body in prayer. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6. The month of November, we are um, in a series entitled, Teach Us to Pray. And we are looking at Jesus' uh, words. We, we traditionally call this the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew chapter 6 is the part we're looking at. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It is also found in uh, Luke chapter 11. It, it's also uh, there in Luke 11. So Luke chapter six, or Matthew chapter 6, middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 11, it comes by way of a question. The disciples say to Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Um, Luke or Matthew chapter 6, it's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the same prayer. We're looking at it in Matthew chapter 6. And um, to begin, let me tell you, if, if you don't know me, one of the things that you would come to discover about me if we went to lunch or um, we were Facebook friends, um, actually not, I'm not on Facebook, uh, but if, if ever I was back on Facebook, you would find out about me. I'm, I'm a Trekkie. I mean, I like Star Trek. I can't help it. I've uh, baptized my youngest daughter into Star Trek. At one, some point, she's going to grow up, and she's going to be really frustrated with me about that, I'm sure. But um, I love it. I mean, I like all the Star Treks, okay? I mean, all the iterations, even when they went to, you know, the female captain. It took me a minute, but I, I like that one, too. Um, but so I like them all, okay? And, uh, but, but I've always been fascinated. So when I was young, man, I loved the stars. I loved astronomy. I loved looking through telescopes. I, I loved um, the planets and the, and the stars and the constellations and the universes and the Milky Way. I mean, I loved, I mean, I loved just gazing out there and thinking how big and vast the universe was. Wondering what was out there. Looked up this week about telescopes and hadn't read about them in a long time. And um, so I looked at it, looked at it, and I 
discovered, I, I, I had thought the Hubble telescope was the most powerful telescope we had. And, and to date it is, although there is one being built um, that is about to be launched in 2018, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will be launched. It's, it's, it's almost finished. Um, and when it is launched, it will be three times the size of the Hubble telescope and 70 times as powerful. And in a telescope, I mean, what it does is it, it, it allows the human eye uh, to see into deep space. I mean, giant telescopes carry human eyes to the edge of the universe. I mean, it, you, you can see worlds beyond, if you will. Um, this, this James Webb telescope, I, I think the original, when they conceived of it, it's like a $1.8 billion uh, project, and then it quickly was like 4.7, and I think now the price tag is $8.7 billion. Um, stuff just ends up costing more than it, you know, we know about that. But anyway, <laughs> that's a different conversation. Uh, I was trying to find out, though, how powerful it was, okay? So here's the thing. If you ever look at telescopes, they don't write this stuff in, like, lay language. They, they think it is. It's really not. So the best description I could find, here you go. Here, here, here it is. Hang with me. This is, this is the description of how powerful it is. The sheer size of the telescope will allow it to peer deeper into the cosmos while adaptive optic technology will allow for the correction of the blurring caused by atmospheric distortion that limits terrestrial telescopic observations. Did you get that? In other words, we'll be able to see so far, it's like we can look back into time. That's what it's saying. I mean, you know this. I mean, when you, when you look into the night sky and you see the stars, you're actually seeing history but because of the way light travels. I mean, you're actually seeing history. And what it's saying is, is that this telescope will allow us to see further back into history than we've ever been able to see. I mean, we'll, we'll be able to see so far. Isn't that fascinating? to think about? I love that thought. I'm probably never get the chance to look through it, but it's, um, it's amazing. Telescope. Magnifying something magnificent. Something that is seen to be more magnificent the more clearly it comes into focus. You could think of prayer that way. Something that is seen to be more magnificent, the more clearly it comes into focus. You could think of prayer that way, like a telescope. You know, last week we, we began this prayer series, and we're looking at this passage in Matthew chapter 6, referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I, I didn't say this last week, and it likely, really, what we ought to say is it is probably better titled the Disciples' Prayer. 
Um, we know it is the Lord's Prayer, so we'll keep calling it that, but it's really likely that better titled the disciples' prayer because it's where Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. The, the Lord's Prayer probably is better John chapter 17 where, uh, where Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer, but for, so we don't get confused. We'll just continue to call it the Lord's Prayer because in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, he says, pray then like this. He's, he's telling them, pray then like this. And then last week we looked at, before he comes to this phrase, pray then like this, Jesus began by giving two examples how not to pray. Did you remember this? So before he says, pray then like this, he gives two examples how not to pray. First, don't pray like the hypocrite and don't pray like the babbler. One of them was putting on an act and the other one was trying to manipulate with words. And then we briefly discussed how Jesus begins the prayer. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then look at verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the two verses we'll look at today. And he begins with addressing God as our Father. So in prayer, we said we're communicating with God. Jesus instructs us that we're to come as children as they would come to their Father. And I would say this, that if you misunderstand the relational dynamic, then you have a hard time understanding the appeal of prayer. See, the intimacy that's meant for prayer won't be there if, if in your mind the relational dynamic is something like a, a student-teacher relationship. So the student-teacher relationships, they're very interesting, are they? aren't they? I mean, um, if you're a teacher, you've probably had this happen to you. You can, um, I've seen it happen with my own kids. You can be in the classroom. The kids are really comfortable. They know all the rules. They, can, they get to know the teacher. Um, there's been times when my kids were sick or you know, before they were able to get to the nurse, the teacher would take care of them. Or before we were able to get there as parents, they, uh, they'd have parties. They'd you know, go to recess. They'd have times where they dressed up. They'd, they'd have fun. There would be discipline. There would be chaos. There would be order. Good days, bad days. I mean, you know. I mean, you, you live these, these long days in a classroom, and everybody gets to know each other. But the strangest thing, my child can run into the same teacher that they see every day in the grocery store and be totally freaked out. Right? I mean, does this ever happen to you? I mean... Nothing to say. Completely freeze up. I mean, almost like stranger danger. Right? Do you know why this is? It's because it's a one-dimensional relationship. For all that the relationship is or seems to be, it is a one-dimensional relationship. 
for all that it appears to be, for all that you say that it might be. It is a one-dimensional relationship. So no matter how much depth of relationship you might say that there is, and you might say, well, how well do you know your teacher? You say, oh, I know my teacher very well. I mean, I got her a coffee mug for Christmas. (laughs) The reality is that relationship does not exist, cannot survive outside of the structure of that classroom. See, I think a lot of Christians have a student-teacher relationship with God. So call the structure what you want. Call it religion or call it church or call it whatever you want, but it doesn't survive. It's a one-dimensional relationship that doesn't survive apart from a church or a Sunday school class. And so then when it's in the real life or it's time for, a, for prayer or saying, okay, I'm going to pray. I've got I've to try to pray. It's like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any, what I thought was a depth of relationship actually isn't any depth of relationship at all. I have no idea who God is. But see, a parent-child relationship is multidimensional. It transcends all those things. And Jesus says, this isn't, you could say a lot of things about God. He's our Lord. He's our, he's our creator. He's the God of the universe. He is all of those things. He is. But he's our Father. Abba. We approach him as a dad. Our Father in heaven. There's intimacy there. So then the next thing that Jesus instructs us is hallowed be your name. So that's the next line. Hallowed means holy. So be seen as holy. That, that is a way that you could say it. The, the prayer is that God would be worshipped, um, to be regarded as sacred, to, to be regarded as ultimate, that, that He would be praised. Um, so we're created for worship. We are worshipers. We all worship something. So, so the hypocrite that is standing in the synagogue or on the street corner is worshiping. And what Jesus points out is that while he looks like he is worshiping God, he is not worshiping God. He is worshiping himself. And the babbler is actually doing the same. Because the babbler is only doing, all he wants is he just wants something from God. And see, that won't hold in a relationship. It's one-dimensional. It's not really prayer like Jesus is teaching us. It's not, really, it's not really what the heart desires. So ask any adult. Ask an adult who got a bunch of stuff growing up from their parent. 
All they got was a bunch of stuff. And at the time, it's probably what they wanted. It's probably what they asked for. It's probably what they even threw temper tantrums for. But now, as an adult, looking back, they would trade all of that stuff for time, a relationship with the parent. Okay, so we're, we're closing in here on what it means, hallowed, your name. Hallowed is this old word. It's, it's the best word. It's a word that means sanctified. All, all the translations use it, even the most readable translations. So if you have a, the most readable translation, it's still going to use hallowed. It's just, it's just not a better word. I mean, it's not just because the excellent standard version uses it. All of them use it. it, it it's, um, it's not another word like it. It <clears throat> means that God is holy. He's set apart. He's like no other. He's to be held in reverence. He's sacred. He's ultimate. It means let your name be sanctified. Let it be set apart. And then when it says, hallowed be your name, it, it means the totality of God's nature and character and attributes, all that He is. All that is magnificent about Him. Be hallowed. You might have heard me talk about my friend named Ronnie Smith. And Ronnie's this great guy. And every time you would run into Ronnie, every time you'd meet with Ronnie, he'd always ask you this question. Whose name are you making big? There might be a way to say it. It's to make God's name big. Psalm 34, 3, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's another way to say it. So see, there's two ways to magnify something with a microscope or a telescope. See, a microscope uses, it, it takes us, it magnifies this small object to make it look bigger than it is. And a telescope, like we talked about earlier, magnifies large objects at a great distance so that they're brought into the field of vision and into greater clarity. So to make God's name big, to hallowed be your name, is to take the magnificence of God and to bring it into greater vision and greater clarity so that the magnificence of God becomes to me more magnificent so that his magnificence, I'm seeing it more magnificently. This is prayer. He is not more glorious 
I am beholding more clearly His glory. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 says about Jesus, He must increase. I must decrease. See, here's the problem. By nature, we're microscope people. We are microscope people. We want to take the microscope and take our little bitty lives and put it under the microscope and try to make them bigger. what the hypocrite's doing when he stands in the synagogue or on the street corner. But prayer is the opposite of that. To hallow be your name is a telescope activity. See, if you're living a microscopic life, you will never have a big enough lens You'll never find a powerful enough lens to make your small life big enough to matter. Ever. Whatever you hallow, whatever you adore, whatever is ultimate in your life will either bring clarity and beauty to everything else or it will distort everything else. How awesome do you think it would be to be married to the guy that stands up in the synagogue and prays so that everybody will look at him? It's got to be awesome, right? Don't you know that wife is so proud? It's like, yeah, that's my husband. probably a joy to live with. Ooh, or the Pharisee on the mountaintop, right? The guy that leads with, God, I am thankful I am not like that guy. Like at the dinner table, God, I am thankful I am not like my wife. Or like the good Jewish man would pray, God, I am thankful that I am not a woman. That's how they prayed. Jesus said that the tax collector on the mountaintop that day the one who knew about himself so much that he couldn't even lift his head said, I'm a sinner. That's the one that went down the mountain justified. There was one man up there with a microscope, and there was another man up there with a telescope. And one man went down the mountain justified. One man magnified the glory of God. 
And the other man was trying to magnify his sorry little life. That's convicting, isn't it? I mean, I don't even need a room full of people to preach to to be convicted. And we have these little things, and I mean, we carry them around. Uh, you have them in your pocket. They're little microscopes that we post. Or little microscopic things about ourselves all the time. Right? I'm not, look, I'm not saying they're bad. I didn't say they were good, but I'm not saying they're bad. Hallowed be your name. Praying that God would be worshipped, that his name would be hallowed. His name would be made big. It has the effect of reorienting our priorities right from the beginning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, I'm in for that. I'm in for that. The next lines, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your, your, your kingdom come. Here's what he's saying. So by saying your kingdom come, that tells me that there are two kingdoms. You, and we're praying to the Father, to our, to our Father, your kingdom come. And there are two kingdoms, and they seem to be at war. Darkness and light. Death and life. Lies and truth and sin and holiness and disobedience and obedience. And there are... There's a false king and a true king. And sin and Satan and demons are at work on this earth. And in prayer, what we acknowledge is that our Father is king. And that we are citizens of his kingdom. And that in his kingdom, do you know what Revelation tells us? In his kingdom, all races are reconciled. And that in his kingdom, there is peace. And that in his kingdom, the oppressed, they get justice. And in his kingdom, the hungry are fed. And in his kingdom, the marginalized are respected. And in his kingdom, the sick are healed. And we love our Father, and hallowed be his name. We're citizens of his kingdom. And we're praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we want to see love and joy and peace and patience and 
mercy and goodness and justice and compassion go to all the peoples. In the gospel of His Son, Jesus, So we pray for that. That's who we are. The church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Here today. Longing for tomorrow as it is in heaven. So that your name, Father, would be made big. So people would know who our Father is. That we would proclaim the glory and the grace of His Son. They would become sons and daughters. It's the kingdom. And it's radical. It's radical. Thy will be done. Thomas Watson, 17th century writer, says those words, thy will be done, are frightening. And if they're frightening to you, just write him off as a 17th century writer, okay? Here's what he says, though. Thy will be done. Jesus is telling you to pray two things. You're praying that you might diligently do all that he commands and that you might also submit patiently to all that he inflicts. That you might diligently do all that he commands and that you might willingly submit to all that he inflicts. See, prayer is not so much about making God do something as it is changing us. Those who pray are changed. Some people don't pray, honestly, honestly, because they don't want to change. I mean, the reality is you, you, you set down the microscope and take up the telescope, you will be changed. And there's people that don't want to do that. They're still in pursuit of making themselves large. But if you pray, biblically pray, you'll be changed. Prayer doesn't so much move the hand of God, although I think we'll see next week. We'll talk about that. He does hear prayer. He does answer prayer. Absolutely. Prayer primarily changes us. We see the magnificence of God more magnificently 
We can't help but be changed by that. Everything becomes more clear and beautiful. It's a prayer of worship. First prayer is a prayer of adoration. Thanking God for who He is and what He's done. Prayer is a prayer of worship. Your will be done. Begins in my life. Want God to fix the world? We do. We, we give ourselves to God. He fixes us. We, we want God to radically bring justice and peace and equality. We We set ourselves before God and have Him align us to His will. That's where we begin. Now, I want to I want to say something because this is this is radically important as I, as I talk about this. Th- this is the Lord's prayer. And it is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I want to be very clear about this context. The Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 6 of Matthew. And if Matthew were here, the gospel writer, he, he might say, as I was wrapping up, he might say, hey, well, you're not going to finish there, are you? And I'd say, well, yeah, I mean, we're almost out of time. These people want to go eat lunch. I mean, the Methodists are going to get all the jello at the, at the place. And he'd say, no, you can't finish there. I did. Duh, you 21st century preachers drive me crazy. He might say that. He might. And I'd say, well, what do you mean, Matthew? See, you guys, I wrote the gospel. The gospel's a story of Jesus from beginning to end. I began with his genealogy, and then I went to his birth. And from his birth, I went to the account of his calling and his baptism and his time in the wilderness. And then to the calling of the disciples. And then I came to the Sermon on the Mount. And from the Sermon on the Mount, I went to the miracles. And from the miracles, I went to the, to the parables. And from the parables, I went to more teachings. And from the teachings, I went to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, I went to the Olivet Discourse. And from the Olivet Discourse, I went to Jerusalem again. And then I went to the arrest. And then I went to the... Then I went to the passion and the beatings and the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection. And if you close the service without talking about the resurrection, then you've left the hearers without hope. Because see, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know what Jesus does? He stands up on the mount 
and he gives the law. Oh no, he doesn't just give the law, he gives the law. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the breath before this, oh, you've heard it said. Thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked at a woman sideways, you've already committed adultery. If you do not forgive, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. Be perfect. How are you doing now with the Sermon on the Mount? You know, I hear people say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, which means I, I, just, I just believe the red letters. To which I say, you're the most miserable person I've ever known in my life then. You are. Matthew would say, listen, if you stop there, you don't know the gospel. Because you can't do this. And that's the whole point. Matthew's written this in such a way that you would read it, and by the time you get to the end, you are desperate. I think the people that heard the Sermon on the Mount, they would have known two things. They would have known about Jesus. That man teaches like nobody I have ever, ever heard in my life. And if that's the kingdom of God, I will never Get in. Which is why I think Matthew gives us one cup of cool water along the way. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. And as Jesus comes off the mountain, Right after he finishes this sermon, the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles, you can see the first person Jesus encounters. And I don't even think this man heard a word Jesus said on this mountain. But this is for you, the hearer. And I think this is for everyone who was on this mountain that heard this teaching, who was wondering, then how can I be saved Listen. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You want to know how you can be clean? It's not by doing the Sermon on the Mount. It's by being healed 
by Jesus. It is not what you do. It is what he has done. You know these words, thy will be done? The next time we hear them in Scripture, Jesus prays them. It's in Luke chapter 24. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in agony just before he's arrested. The disciples have fallen asleep. And he's praying to God the Father. And he knows what awaits him. And he prays to the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not this beating, not this shame. He could handle the physical bit. But this cup of infinite wrath that I am about to take for the sins of humanity. If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, thy will be done. I am so thankful Jesus prayed those words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's a great telescope, isn't it? If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the, for the gospel that the tax collector, Matthew, wrote. Father, who knew exactly what it was like to be a, an outcast beyond the hope And yet, Father, to be saved. To be able to call you Father. To be saved by the grace of your Son, Jesus. To hallow your name. To set down the microscope. To pick up the telescope. To see the beauty and clarity of your glory come into focus through your son Jesus for it is by grace that we are saved through faith this is not of our works lest any of us should boast or stand in the synagogue or on the street corner or be babblers that we can come and kneel before you and say, Our Father. So we thank you for this. And if there's anybody in here this morning that hasn't done that, Father, I pray you'd grant them faith to believe 
this morning to say, I, I believe, I trust in Jesus. And to cry out to you. If you, if you will, you can make me clean. And to experience your healing touch, even today, we ask this. The only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.